You are listening to Policy, a Chicago Sustainability Series dialogue with Joyce Coffey, the president of Climate Resilience Consulting, Deborah Stone, Cook County's Chief Sustainability Officer and the director of the Cook County Department of Environmental Control, and Ashley Munson, then policy coordinator at the Illinois Environmental Council and now working in the office of Commissioner Hosina Morita at the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago, recorded March 30th, 2017 at Civis Analytics. Each dialogue is a microphilanthropic initiative that explores sustainability, inclusion, and representation. And at our policy dialogue, we raised $165 for Food and Water Watch Midwest efforts in support of the People's Climate March in Chicago. For us, this was a demonstration of solidarity with frontline communities and grassroots efforts towards conscientious environmental policy. Thanks to everyone at Civis Analytics for hosting. That's Alyssa Ampazan, Jonathan Alvarez, Lisa Kornblatt, and Brian Gill. Melissa Bryce of 350.org Chicago Chapter discussed the significance of the march and provided a call to action. In continuing our partnership with Healthy Soil Compost and Nature's Little Recyclers, we again were able to minimize our food and food-related waste and, of course, feed some worms. Assembly Required founder Sophia Brown spoke about her artist-driven initiative and showcased climate-related artwork as a preview of our shared activation at the People's Climate March along with Chicago Votes and the Black and Brown Chicago Collective. These partnerships are crucial for making our dialogues impactful and responsible. A big thank you to those behind the scenes, including Haima Black of Dynasty Podcasts, Laura Oakleaf of Cook County Department of Environmental Control, Jennifer Walling of Illinois Environmental Council, Emily Nuncio Schick of the Black and Brown Chicago Collective, Alex Lerma, Drew Frederickson of Fix My Mixes, Jamari and Hadari over at Sam Ash, and finally Monica and Matt from Midwest Pro Sound and Lighting. To find out about upcoming dialogues, community meetings, volunteer opportunities, and activations, go to sustainthesci.com. So the whole point of this dialogue is to really look at what have we already gained in Chicago, what the context is, and what does this actually mean for the city. I'm joined by Joyce Coffey, who's the president of Climate Resilient Consulting, Deborah Stone, Debbie, who is Cook County's Chief Sustainability Officer and the head of a director at the director of the Cook County Department of Environmental Control, and Ashley Munson, who is a policy coordinator at Illinois Environmental Council and kicks ass down in Springfield for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, if you all could just briefly speak kind of about your background, but also I thought a cool way to start this would be if you could share a story about the, the first time you saw sustainability impact someone's life positively. And I'll let you decide whoever's ready to start. So my name is Joyce Coffey, and uh, I've been involved in the sustainability movement for over two decades, and um, started my career actually working uh, in global issues overseas in Southeast Asia. Um, but my Chicago experience really was honed when I was with the city of Chicago, where I led the implementation of the Chicago Climate Action Plan, along with some other colleagues at the Department of Environment, which no longer exists, but was a separate department within the city. Um, after Department of Environment, um, I also worked with Fortune 500 companies 
on uh, public relations for corporate social responsibility. So I've done some work in the corporate sphere, and I led a nonprofit called the Global Adaptation Initiative, which really focused on increasing our awareness about the most vulnerable um, countries in the world to climate change. So a real theme of my career has been climate adaptation and resilience to the changes that we cannot avoid from climate change. And I now run my own company called Climate Resilience Consulting based in Chicago, but working for clients around the world. Um, I think the most exciting moment um, in terms of sustainability embrace uh, was when I initiated the Chicago Conservation Corps, which some of you may know or remember. Um, it's a volunteer program where citizens of Chicago um, can be trained over the course of many Saturdays and then get funding to implement um, a sustainability project of their choice. And uh, I just can't believe, or perhaps I can, I'm just su super inspired by the amazing innovation that is within the heart of all of us, um, and especially residents around the city of Chicago doing work um, that they really believe in that's helping their communities to survive and thrive. Wow. Deborah. <laughs> sure. So I have a public policy background. I consider myself a planner, and I really spent my career kind of moving back and forth between positions where I had the opportunity to make cities better, more livable, more affordable, uh, better access between jobs and housing, and jobs where I kind of dealt with the flip side of that, which is open space, natural areas, um, preserving our water and our, our land and our air. And um, I view them very much the same because if you have workable cities, that helps in uh, getting a denser population, which helps preserve open space. If you have good open space policies, it helps encourage denser cities, which are more workable, which can be better served by transit and, and so forth. So I don't view those as um, kind of different points of view at all. So my work actually has ranged from I was executive director of a nonprofit called the Metropolitan Planning Council a long time ago. I've worked in government since then, uh, most recently at Cook County. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Before that, I was deputy director at the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, where I my view was statewide, and I was looking at how to preserve habitat for endangered species, how to preserve the best of the best of what remains of our original habitat. Um, and a very exciting project that I worked on there was working with the 11 county region around Chicago on water supply and trying to educate folks who look out at our beautiful, I'm not sure which direction it is, lakefront um, every day and get them to realize that we do have a water supply issue and we better start planning for it. And if we do plan for it, we can enhance our resilience and um, become and stay a good place for business and people to locate. So at Cook County, I'll talk a little bit more, I'm sure, about that work, but I run a, a bread and butter environmental regulatory agency in suburban Cook County. We regulate air emissions and waste and landfills and things like that. Um, but uh, we also are taking on the role of trying to make Cook County the most sustainable county in the U.S. Um, so the, the, the most exciting uh, time when I've seen resilience impact, somebody might have actually been today, but I'm going to save that one. Okay? Hi, everyone. These women are amazing. My background is a little bit short. So I graduated from Purdue University in West Lafayette, um, May 2014. 
And so I majored in political science, minored in global studies. So that uh, shifted me towards being a campaign manager in Indianapolis. So I have a lot of campaign experience in that. Um, and then after that campaign was over, I started work in Springfield, where I was a staffer for the Illinois House of Representatives. And so I was there extensively working with legislators, learning how the state of Illinois really works. Um, and you guys should take a trip to Springfield. We have a lobby day coming up, I'll talk about later. Um, but I got a chance to work with legislators, build those relationships, which is really, it became really critical in where I am now and learning how to um, build relationships with them and work in regards to building legislation. So skip to now, I am the Illinois Environmental Council Policy Coordinator where I work specifically um, with legislators working in Springfield lobbying on behalf of the environment. Excuse me, and bear with me, I have a cold, so if you see me coughing, just, you know, just extend peace and good vibes. Um, and so I work extensively with legislators trying to build policy. And I also focus on renewable energy, solar, um, and I also work with water conservation. And so since I started last September, um, my executive director has me in a lot of issues. So a lot of my work is going to meetings and pretending like I know what's going on. And then eventually I know what's going on. And so it's a lot of... Um, jumping in the water, learning how to swim, but energy, water conservation, a little bit of composting, um, and working with legislators. I also have a piece of getting people of color more into the environmental conversation, learning the issues that affect us and why it's important for everyone to be a part of that conversation. And so I think that's a little bit of, of a good summary. A story that I have, I will say, so I grew up in Beverly, south side of Chicago. My mother resides in Roseland now. And so I think the most successful or like filling story I have is getting people involved with recycling. Mm. And so seeing how they are educated and telling their parents, they go to school, they recycle, they teach up by going home and telling their parents about, mom, this is what I did at school today. And seeing how that really affects the household. And the household starts to recycle and learn about things they wouldn't know otherwise. So I think that's been really impactful. Small, but it's done a lot. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. And myself included, if we could all just move a little bit closer to the mics. Sure. Um, so, not surprised by this, but one of the things I really appreciate, and, and I think this for, serves as a very good bedrock for the discussion, is in terms of sustainability really taking root and resonating with people, which of course is required for us to then go into sustainable policy making, is it's that individual, and again, with that younger generation, bringing it closer, so it's not just kind of this amorphous concept. Um, Kind of jumping off on that, if you all could just talk a little bit about the communities you work with on a day-to-day -day and how sustainability is viewed, whether it's a matter of it's better viewed as resiliency is perhaps the better framing of it, or is it around job creation or clean water, just kind of how your constituencies respond and what really connects for them. I guess I'll start since we started that way. Thank you. Initially, no problem. Um, I would say, I'll give you two perspectives. One is working with legislators. And I think a lot of legislators do care about the environment. They do care about energy. They care about going green. But I think it's a point, I had a conversation with one mm -hmm. legislator, and I was telling them how they should back this bill and be a part of it, but they were saying, where are the jobs? And so I like kind of ignored the, the question and tried to like segue into something else. He's like, no, Ashley, where are the jobs? And I think 
he was he was he was being he wasn't being facetious. He was just joking with me. But like looking at that issue and being serious about it, it's like how can we go to legislators and make them realize how important it is to their communities and their constituents? How important being a part of the environmental conversation is. Um, and I think job creation job creation is a big point that they really care about and helping not only them but understanding how can this build their community. Um, and I, I don't think it's more of they don't care. I just think it's just trying to find creative ways to work with people of color and work with legislators to feel like, okay, what can we do? How can we get results from what we're trying to do? Because, you know, we can say recycle and compost all day, but what are the actual results and helping them see those result, results? Um, and I think working in the communities back in Chicago and um, in other parts of the state is just education. It's trying to show them, like, why this is important. I think we had this conversation a little bit earlier, not just people of color, but period. You know, you have people of wealth that are already practicing these um, practices, um, but they still don't understand sometimes what the importance of it is, especially if you grew up in a household where they were already composting or doing these things that are second nature to you. I think it's a matter of helping everyone get on the same page and help them understand, like, this is what we're trying to do. This this is why um, this party needs to be involved. And just being more cohesive and working together to build a stronger solution and stronger uh, creative ways to help the community understand what's really going on. So um, I, I can look at a couple different ways at the communities that I work with. One is primarily suburban Cook County, but I'm going to start with Cook County government as an entity. Um, and both of those communities have this in common, that they are incredibly fragmented and siloed. There's no one community. Um, so Cook County government, um, all right, so here, okay, pop quiz. Can anybody here name one function that Cook County government does? Healthcare. Okay, pretty good. Another one? Forest preserves. Okay, anything else? Third? Law enforcement. Good. Um, that's, you're very good. This is better than most audiences. So, healthcare, the criminal justice system, uh, and running the property tax system, the assessor, the clerk, the da, 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 are the biggest things the county does. Forest Preserve is actually separate government, but they're our sister agency. Um, so, you know, Cook County government is something that you go to when you're sick, you get injured, you have to go to jail or bail out your brother. Um, it's basically something you have to deal with when you really don't want to. Um, so, um, we, you know, first of all, understand that the county government is run by uh, about 11 different elected officials. The Cook County Board President, my boss, Tony Preckwinkle, is only in charge of a tiny slice of the pie of the spending. Um, the sheriff, the assessor, the chief judge, on and on and on, are, are in charge of most of the personnel and assets. Um, and our main mission, even under the Cook County Board President, is not sustainability. Their mission is all these other things. So um, luckily, President Preckwinkle has made a very strong commitment. She said publicly, I want to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions in Cook County 80% by 2050. And we set an annual target, and we measure every year how we're doing. And we publish those numbers and let everybody know, thank God. Um, we are at a target. I've got a handout over there, and you can see that, you know, we, according to our target, we wanted to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions 
from 2010. We're now at a 22% reduction from our buildings. Um, thank, I say thank God because probably I wouldn't be sitting here because I'd be out and somebody else would be in my job. But, but we don't talk a lot. We don't talk a lot of green language within the county. Um, we talk about efficiency. We talk about saving taxpayer dollars. Um, we talk about improving services for county residents. Um, and we talk about innovation. So um, it's very critical that we be able to make a financial case that what we want to do in sustainability has a payback and we can convince the, the chief financial officer. Um, if it's something where we can be a leader in the nation, that gets the interest of the county board. Um, but the county board who votes on my budget, they're about half Republican and half Democrat. It's, you know, you've got you've to make a case. You can't, you can't rely on ideology. Um, but besides efficiency, good service, and innovation, the last key principle is equity. And if I can't make my programs that I want to do work in Harvey and Phoenix and Chicago Heights and Robbins and Markham and places like that, A, I'm not going to reach my 80% by 2050 goals because that's a big part of the county. And like um, metropolitan areas all across the country, there's really been a suburban, I'd call it a suburbanization of poverty. Um, and B, it's just not right, and that's not the way we do things, and I can't take something like that to the president's office and, and get it approved. Um, so that's, that's kind of the lens through which things are looked at within the county. In suburban Cook County, um, you know, I think about the department that um, Joyce used to do this very important work at, at the city, the City Department of Environment. We're kind of like that at the county. It's about two and a half million people in the city, about two and a half million people in suburban Cook County. One of the differences, we have 130 mayors, mm -hmm. um, each one of which is legally as self-sufficient and independent as, as Mayor Emanuel of the city of Chicago. Um, and the uh, diversity of income levels range from some of the richest census tracts in the United States to some of the poorest. And because we have this fragmentation of government, and because we in Illinois we have this crazy tax system, which you know a lot about, um, where we rely very heavily on property tax and sales tax, which depend on what kind of development you have in your community. Um, all those communities compete, and those that don't got have to raise their tax level higher and higher just to pay their police and so forth, which causes business not to locate there, so they're a lot of these communities, especially in the south suburbs, are kind of in a spiral um, going down. Not, not a good spiral. Um, so we, we talk about environmental benefits. Really, you find, I think, that most people are interested in environmental benefits. You'd be surprised. Um, immigrant communities of all types, um, lower-income communities. But we talk about dollar savings. We talk about... Um, financial investments like energy efficiency and renewable energy that help you hedge your risk against future costs like increases in energy. Um, and we talk about control and ownership in terms of things like renewable energy, you know, being in control in your own community and being in control of, of your own destiny.
Great. So it was a two-part question, right? The first question is, um, what are we working on? And the second part is, what does sustainability look like in Chicago? So on the first part, I'll say that you know the majority of my work is at the national scale right now. I'm working with Rockefeller Foundation, the Kresge Foundation, a group called the Global Adaptation Resilience Investment Work Group. All of that work is really focused on where can we best apply resources to help to save lives and improve livelihoods in the face of change. And um, in, in particular, some of the work is asking about a policy platform for the federal government, which maybe I'll have a chance to talk about a little bit more in another question. Uh, we're also looking at how adaptation has rolled out across the nation, um, whether there is, in fact, a field of practice focusing right now on adaptation. Um, and in particular now, you know, taking the question now back to the city of Chicago, what I'm really impressed by is that what matters to Chicagoans is that their basements remain dry when we have extreme weather, that they do not present at the emergency room um, when there is extreme heat, and uh, that they do not have exposure to vector-borne diseases that are increasing as our ecosystems change. Those seem to be three very classic needs of Chicagoans. They're not the first thing that they mention when you ask, you know, what is the most important part of your life? But when they happen, they have deleterious impacts, especially on lower income communities. I think many of you know about the 1995 urban heat island impact where the city of Chicago is unfortunately world renowned for the fact that we lost 740 souls in one extreme heat event uh, because people died on the way to the emergency room or in their homes uh, due to extreme heat. We were not prepared. Our emergency management wasn't prepared. Our morgue wasn't prepared. The whole system broke down. And what was most impressive about it and why we are so well known is that the vast majority of people who died were black and very, very, very few white people died. And so it was like the primal story of how sustainability is an environmental justice issue. So I've just been talking for about three minutes and I have never once said the word climate. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about climate because climate is not something that affects us day to day. I mean, that's a fact, right? Climate is a decadal, a uh, hundred year issue. I, of course, have called my company Climate Resilience because I believe strongly that we do need to be looking at a different future than we have the past. And the most important way from my perspective to do that is to understand the variability and change that's coming um, and that has actually has already arrived in many cases due to climate change. But in the city of Chicago, climate is not a priority for anyone. The most important priorities have already been mentioned by my panelists, right? It's jobs, it's poverty, it's access. All of those things have, you know, definitely been impacted by climate in one way or the other already and it are, you know, stand to be an even greater risk in the future. And that's where we go to our communities and help them to decrease asthma, to decrease the, uh, to increase their disconnected downspouts, to increase their access to education about what to do in the case of extreme heat, and in other ways make them resilient to changes that are coming. Thank you. I'll share a quick anecdote. <clears throat> so this was back in 2012. I was fresh out of undergrad, and I was working at a company that did gray water hauling. Gray water being, you know, when you rinse out that coffee cup, um, you do laundry. And I was going out, and I'm scoping jobs, which smells wonderful, if you can imagine. Um, <laughs> and I was doing this in the Loop, and I was doing this in Lincoln Park. And for the most part, property managers are responsive to 
okay, you know, here's the margin. Yes, please get rid of it. Do so in an environmentally sustainable way. And I was like, great, like I can push this as, you know, we're tracking the waste and we're a very green company. And then I started trying to get work in Humboldt Park in public housing, tried to get work over on 121st and projects over there. And I would lift the lids and the difference would be soapy water that, you know, maybe has like an orange peel floating in it, like at the end of your dinner when you're doing your dishes. And that's typically how it was in Lincoln Park around the north side. And then the further south I went or the further west I went is it would go from, you know, I don't know if everyone, anyone has ever made Mexican hot chocolate, but kind of like when it's frothing at the top, to just almost solid when I went down to 121st. And I would talk to the property managers and I would say, hey, what's, you know, what's, what's going on here? Because I'm talking to people who live in these areas and they're saying they don't have clean water, that sludge is coming back through their pipes when they try to take a shower, they try to wash their hands and so forth. And they would say, oh, well, we, we have a property, we have a, uh, a vendor and they do it for this range. And I was like, okay, well, that means they're not taking anything because you can't dump at that range. And the only way I was able to get work in lower income neighborhoods, you know, even though we were doing everything sustainably and properly, and I'd, I had all the paperwork, was if I lowered our prices and talked about it as your people are going to be happier, they're going to be complaining less. Um, so just kind of everything you're talking about, it's, it's so tempting to, to approach things as, as sustainability or climate change. But based on income and based on geography, that doesn't always work because there are other realities, whether it's job creation, whether it's income. Um, so this is all very, very insightful, what you're sharing. Something I'd like to kind of dive into is how does Harvey, how does Springfield, how do other cities around the country look at Illinois and look at Chicago? Um, which may be kind of a loaded question, but... Um, or how do you see Chicago and your area situated right now um, in terms of recent victories? Thank you. So um, I am going to try not to steal Ashley's thunder in terms of talking about the uh, energy bill that passed last November, but I do want to say that um, I've been working on a project on the concept of community solar, which gives me tremendous hope for this region. Um, this is a, a concept that says, hey, you know, um, if we want to reduce our greenhouse gases in a significant way, renewable energy is a big part of that. Solar is a big part of that. But probably 80% of the people, the businesses in Cook County cannot put solar on their own roofs. So why? You know, maybe they're a renter, they don't control their roof, or they live in a condo, you know, similarly. Um, maybe like my house, it's not situated right. I have a tall two-flat right to the south of me. It just isn't, you know, feasible. One of the biggest reasons is that, you know, somebody's physical structure might be appropriate but they do not have the resources to afford the upfront investment in the solar array. So the community solar concept says, we're gonna come in and we're gonna put somewhat larger solar installations where they make sense, where the sunlight's good and you've got access to the grid without a lot of upgrades and 
we are going to create a not so much a technological innovation because it's just regular solar panels, but we're going to create a economic and social innovation where we recruit subscribers who essentially buy into the project and then can benefit from the savings. And this could take any number of different forms. You can put the solar on somebody's roof or on a vacant area. Um, it can be built and maintained by the property owner where it is. It could be built and maintained by a third-party solar developer who's the expert. So the property owner doesn't really have to mess with it and maybe just gets a rent check for their roof space once a year. Um, there's an equally wide variety of arrangements for subscribers. You know, somebody like me might be willing to buy in up front. Um, I want to buy in for 20 solar panels, or I want to buy in for one solar panel because I don't have a lot of cash right now. Um, this, this morning we were at a site uh, in Evanston. We're about to announce actually 15 pilot sites for community solar. Um, so that will be next week, so I'm, I, I can't do the big reveal. But this site was a nonprofit that provided affordable housing for people with physical disabilities, most of whom have extremely, extremely limited incomes. And in these apartments, the residents pay their own utility bills. And if you think about it, um, these are very small apartments, but they were you know, very nice. It was a great community that helped people be self-sufficient, uh, but they were on fixed incomes. And if your income is $1,000 a month or maybe $600 a month and you pay your own electric bill, which in a small apartment, you know, might be $60 to $80 a month, and if you didn't live in subsidized housing you had a family, your, your electric bill might be $200 a month, that is an enormous percentage of your income. There are a lot of low-income folks who, according to Elevate Energy, which is a great nonprofit, that works on um, energy issues, particularly for uh, low and moderate income folks. Energy can, is not unusual for your utility bills to be up to 30% of your income if you are low income on a fixed income. And so for these residents to be able to save 25 or 30% of their electric bill every month meant they'd be more likely to regularly purchase their medicines and they'd be less likely to run out of food. Um, so we're, we're very excited about this concept of community solar because it can be structured in so many different ways. There can be arrangements that can fit um, all different types of communities, all different types of um, structures, owners, and all different types of subscriber groups. And we really think that, although there are, isn't any yet in Illinois, um, the concept has been taking off in Colorado, in California, um, in Minnesota now. They've had a big program for a couple of years. Um, and we hope we're helping to show the way by, by developing some case studies and some pilots. But we're just hoping this takes off and leaves us in the dust. We think this is going to be a big part of our future, and we're very excited about it. So I'm going to answer the question first with a comment about 
the national scene, and then I'll get into how the city is seen. Um, Because I think, um, you know, we had some not great news, uh, horrible news, actually, on Tuesday. Um, You know, the executive order was signed by President Trump, aims to unravel many critical components of the U.S. climate policy, mandating that federal agencies rewrite the Clean Power Plan, lift a moratorium on federal coal leasing, and remove the requirement that federal officials consider the impact of climate change and integrate the social costs of carbon when making decisions. And the EO opens the door to years of litigation, frankly, because a number of the regulations that it seeks to remove are actually mandated, such as the uh, EPA's obligation to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Um, It also rescinds previous executive orders from the Obama administration, for instance, those that direct federal agencies to plan and prepare for the impact of climate change and to support communities across the nation in their efforts to improve preparedness and resilience. Um, I think the other key for me is that this came on the heels of also horrible news about the CDBG, which is the Community Development Block Grant, which several weeks ago was essentially um, suggested to be zeroed out by the president. It has to obviously go through Congress for budget. But the money that's called CDBG comes from the Housing and Urban Development Department of the federal government. And this is one of the ways that the most vulnerable communities around the nation uh, increase their ability to thrive. So I'm struck by the fact that these two paired issues make it a lot harder to bring resilience to our communities. But what they also do is they really put the spotlight on city leadership. We may remember in 2005 when President Bush refused to sign the Kyoto Protocol, immediately, literally within months, 167 cities in the United States signed on themselves. There was no protocol for cities to sign the Kyoto Protocol. They decided they were going to do it. Uh, At the same time here in the United States, I think something like 67 corporations um, basically told told President Trump very recently that they thought he was doing the wrong thing around the clean power plan. So there is a lot of opportunity. Those are very you know, small examples of the major opportunity that exists for leadership in other places when we see the leadership fail at the federal level. And cities like Chicago, I think, are well positioned and certainly well were expected to do something about this major vacuum that is left by the federal government's actions. Um, and I say we're well positioned because although we all acknowledge that the climate or sustainability direction of the city of Chicago isn't there. Um, We don't have a Department of Environment. We don't talk about climate. We have a very strong coalition of community leaders, including IEC, who have made incredible progress to protect all of our lives and livelihoods, number one. We have a strong mayor who has a very good sense of how to get resources in spite of um, you know, and behind the, the and through, through, you know, whatever means necessary to get resources for the city. And um, we have, you know, some really, really uh, enormous progress that's been made, both from the region, in the EPA, from the county, that is going to power us forward. Um, I think we also should acknowledge, I can't, it just keeps wanting to come off my tongue, so I'm going to say that in the city of Chicago, what we're also well known for, unfortunately, is a very, very... Um, tragic fact, which is that criminal justice and racial issues trump everything. And so if we can't figure that out, I actually don't have a lot of hope for the city of Chicago when it comes to the executive orders that have been changed at the federal level. Because if we can't help ourselves to help one another, um, we're and including, by the way, elected officials making much better strides in that direction, I think we're going to have a lot of trouble with sustainability in general. Oh, um, 
I was I was listening to you. I was tuned in. Um, so I'll touch on a portion um, that we talked about the funeral. Future Energy Jobs Bill. So that bill is a big technical bill, but I'll only focus on the parts that are more relevant to this conversation. Um, so it passed at the beginning of this year. It is a victory. It's definitely a victory that we had, like Joyce touched on. Um, and and it's several reasons why it's a victory, but I'll focus on this point. We had several um, nonprofits, utilities, ComEd, and everyone worked together for this bill. In the beginning, it started out with a lot of technical pieces as demand rates and all these things that could increase customers' cost of bills. But we were able to get to the table and remove demand rates, and now we have um, money that will be provided for the state of Illinois to reduce carbon emissions by 50%, I believe, by 2050. And so this money is not only going to uh, renewable energy in, in the entire state of Illinois, but it's also going to, towards what she mentioned, uh, lower solar solar programs. Yeah, I think I said that right. Yeah. And so basically it, it allows for job training in these neighborhoods of community of color or economic, economically disadvantaged communities uh, for jobs, education. And it provides, I believe, $750 million for these programs. And so what we're doing as IEC now is working on implementation. What neighborhoods get these funds? How does it look? And she, and she mentioned a part of the program that they're rolling out, but we're working on the specific uh, specifics of definitions. What does, um, and what is the term? What does low income necessarily mean? And so we're working also on researching, like a lot of people just think the South Side and West Side, but it's parts of Illinois that are just as economically deprived as Chicago, some parts of Chicago. If you drive past, I say maybe... 20 miles past Springfield, it's different colors, but they experience the same issues, right? And so now we're just working on implementation to make sure that every all the communities that need this program get it because, and, and, and education plays a big part of it too, to understand like what do solar panels do, right? And why do they, why are they beneficial for us? And why are they beneficial for the state of Illinois? So I think that's one victory that we have. I do agree that violence um, is highlighted more than environmental justice and stuff like that. Um, but I think... I see hope for for um, nonprofits and utilities to come together and get this bill passed. And, and yes, there's a lot going on at the federal level with Donald Trump and everything, but Illinois is a key factor in the environmental field now. And we, we are a leader in the energy. And if you ask other states, I participate on a regional call with Minnesota, Michigan, and all the other states, and they see us as a leader. And so even though it is a lot going on in Chicago and the state of Illinois, like we are a leader. And if we can figure out a budget um, and get get over violence, I think, you know, it's hope there. It's just a matter of continue to, continually to work together and have stuff like this and talk about the elephant in the room and have those dialogues so people can be aware. So, yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so I've, I've personally been struggling with how to talk about the new federal context. You all can probably guess what my personal politics are, but what I really want to focus on is... Structural poverty, issues with people of color um, being dis disenfranchised, issues with southern suburbs having different access to resources, changes in industry and the like. None of this was invented by Barack Obama or the Clintons or Donald Trump or the next president or what happened. Mean, this, this is part of a long cycle of American history and American urbanization. And it manifests pretty much in the same way except in parts of California, um, you know, across the United States. So 
going into 2017, where we have a lot of momentum at the state, at the county, and of course all the caveats, you know, but, and at the city level, we still have a lot of momentum and we are regional leaders. Um, from where you all are, and especially lessons from other parts of the world, Joyce, what can people, what, what can we be doing, what do you all need to enable you to move forward on your current projects and also to keep them strong and solidified so they're not something that, you know, in 10 years, XYZ party can say, oh, well, here's this executive order and solar is no longer a thing we're doing. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just look hypothetically and still keep us on track for goals for 2020, 2050, 2030. Um, I mean, so many needs, but one thing I'll say is um, in the adaptation space, we're in entering a new era. I, I say as you know, a woman of white privilege that many of us in the adaptation space have not done a good job of understanding how equity fits into our work. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, we know that the vulnerability of climate change disproportionately affects the poor and um, in particular uh, racial minorities. And um, so I think one thing that I'm really inspired by and what I would like to see more of is a cultural embrace of some of these sustainability issues. Um, I have the deep pleasure of speaking with someone named Reverend Yearwood, who's the head of something called the Hip Hop Caucus. It came out of the 2008 election. It was a get out the vote initiative and it's pivoted towards sustainability and climate change. It's led primarily by 14 to 17 year old individuals from uh, black communities and Hispanic, Hispanic communities in the United States. And their big issue is trying to get cultural icons um, and, you know, I'm not even, Beyonce, I guess, is one name I know. I mean, I'm just, you know, Adele, I don't know. I, I'm not even aware of these people's names. But to speak truth to power about the value of being involved in sustainability in your communities and asking that your leadership, elected uh, and otherwise, do something about sustainability. So, I mean, it's not an area that I know anything about, but I have to say that it makes me so excited to think about culture being a driver for change. And um, Reverend Yearwood reminds me, this is more of my era, that Schoolhouse Rock was a real civics lesson for many of us. And, um, you know, what is the next Schoolhouse Rock for the embrace of sustainability um, for all of us to understand, you know, that we as humans need to take care of one another and take care of our planet in the way that's going to drive um, the right kind of change? So that would be my, that would be my request. Oh, yeah. Um, so just to piggyback off what you said, Joyce, I think advocacy is very important. And um, being in Springfield, you get to see not only how the state works, the state works, but you get to see how legislators think. Um, and it's very, it's, you know, a federal level, it's probably sometimes impossible to meet with your federal legislator, right? But your Springfield, the ones that represent you in Springfield is so easy. If you get a trip to Springfield, just say, hey, I'm Ashley from green seat or gray seat organization, right? And I just want to talk to you about gray seats. You may not be able to see them. That was a horrible example. But you may not be able to see them right now, like within this time frame, but they'll call you back and they get to know who you are and what you represent and the issues that you're passionate about. And they'll know your name and they'll know when they see you in Springfield, like, hey, they care about gray seats and I should do something because they're in my district and they vote for me. And I think once people realize the power that we have at a state level, because we ultimately vote these people into office. And if we get serious, not only about the environmental issues or whatever matters in your district, I think that'll help paint the picture for them. Like I should 
educate myself about these issues so they can know. And a point with advocacy is like for this um, future energy jobs bill and the low income solar program, we have a, um, a resolution that we're trying to pass that protects these funds so we can do these projects. And advocacy plays a big part in that. And so even today, we were going around talking to legislators and trying to help them understand how important this is. And imagine if 500 of us just went down and just flew to the Capitol and just swarm everybody to talk about these issues. So it's very important. And I had on here education. I keep bringing up education because it is very important to understand the issues and help people of color understand it. And I'm just getting, that's why I said these women are amazing. They've been, you know, trailblazers in their work. And I'm just getting started with this energy conversation because my head is campaign, campaign talk. I can do that all day. But understanding that it's not just solar energy, it's composting, it's recycling, and all these issues that are very important. If we educate more people about these issues, they'll care more and how and helping them understand why it's important. So I think even playing a part in social media, whether it's Periscope or Snapchat or whatever, you have to come form in a way to reach out to the young folks. And just like the example I use with recycling, kids are going to lead the way. Like, I mean, I'm only 25, but I can only imagine the 16 and 17 year olds, they're being like, social media is a heavy influence. And if we can find a way to work with social media and education to have a preventative measures and find out how to educate them, I think we'll be good to go. I mean, I think we still have a long way to go, of course. Right. But I think it, it's a step. And so, so I the love first the snaps. Thing, <laughs> first thing I want to say was, yeah, what Ashley said. <laughs> um, you know, she she's actually totally right about how easy it is to get to know your state legislator and senator. Um, and they have district offices, too, which means you don't need to go to Springfield. And they're not in Springfield. Probably they're back home at least six months of the year. Um, and I think what I heard you saying is, some really good advice, which is let them get to know you. So don't wait until there's a crisis um, to show up in their office and say, ah, I need this. You know, go, go to visit them and say, I live in your district, and here's what I work on, and here's why it's important for people to work in your district. They really appreciate that you take the time, even if it's 10 minutes, to do that um, before you need to ask them to vote on something. And this, this sounds like, oh my God, I could never do that. It is so easy. Um, but I want to add two other things. Um, and, and these are a little bit dry and, and wonky, but th there are so many needs. But one is data. Okay, now bear with me before you go to sleep. Um, the Trump administration this week proposed almost a 50% cut in the portion of the EPA budget that goes to state and local governments just to measure the air quality. This has been going on since the clean air passed after the first Earth Day in 1970. It's what tells us what the ozone level is today. It's what tells us if there's lead in the air. It's what tells us the data behind the little icons that appear on your TV screen that tell you if today's a good air quality or a poor air quality. And if you have asthma or um, cardiopulmonary disease, that's information that you need to know because you need to modify your behavior to, to, to make yourself safer. Um, that data is at risk. Um, and that data is also behind enforcement. The EPA and the states that help carry out the Clean Air Act 
you know, go and uh, enforce against uh, polluters that violate their Clean Air Act permits. How can they do that if we don't have the data? That seems that's one of those under the radar things that everybody takes for granted. That's really critical. Um, and you know, oh my God, they approved the Keystone XL pipeline, and oh my God, we're pulling out of Paris. Data, you know, okay, come on, um, get excited about it, folks. Um, and the other thing that I'm going to say that's kind of dry and wonky is um, my background is more sort of look at things from an economic point of view, and that's, you know, the dismal science and all that, and we quantify everything, and there's no soul to it and all that. But, you know, um, it's how you move a lot of levers that get a lot of people to change their behavior. And I'd like to piggyback on this idea of education. I'd like for um, somebody who really can help bring along all sorts of communities and communicate with them about some basic economic facts. Um, one is that if you look at a lot of the research that's being done, even that's come out in the last couple of weeks about how the world might possibly um, live up to the Paris Accord from last year. Oh my God, we're really gonna have to disinvest in oil. We're gonna have to make major new investments in other things. We're gonna have to um, put in price supports and probably you know, yank the subsidies for big oil and it's gonna be so disruptive and so many people are gonna lose their jobs. Well, you know, hold on a minute. The modeling that's coming out is essentially saying that the global GDP or the global economy is gonna grow more the faster we move to the clean economy. And that's something I'd really like to see get out there. Um, another one, another thing that I'd like to see get out there is that, you know, I, you remember 2008 and the housing bubble um, and what happened and what happened to people's savings and, you know, suddenly your parents' 401k became a 201k and uh, all of that. Um, that had a lot of impact on a lot of people. Where you think that was a bubble, wait till the um, carbon companies realize that their billion, trillions, not billions, trillions of dollars of investment in um, oil reserves and coal reserves are becoming sunk assets that they will never be able to monetize because the economy and the technology is moving on. Um, the faster we all recognize it, the faster we start to diversify our assets, the better off we'll be able to avoid personal harm from that bubble bursting. And guess what? The faster that happens, the faster we're going to move away from a carbon economy. Um, and then the last sort of economic thing I'd, I'd really like to sort of somehow get into the public consciousness is um, the new energy economy is good jobs. There are already more people there are already, I can't remember the exact number, three or four times as many people in employed in solar and wind and energy efficiency as in oil, gas, and coal combined. So if Donald Trump wants to help the coal miners bring back their jobs, what about all these other jobs, and why isn't he speaking to that? Because he should be. I want to disagree with one thing you said. You talked about economics being kind of heartless and dry, and I disagree completely with that. Thank you. <laughs> because 
if you can align this stuff economically, and sometimes the economic argument is what you need to get a pi- something bipartisanly mm-hmm. passed, at the end of the day, you're getting disenfranchised people, ideally, access to resources and access to equity. And sometimes that can be a very powerful level lever. Um, so, yeah, that's the only part I would disagree with, that it, it actually it, it impacts people. But you're very enlightened, so. <laughs> it's because of a lot of people. Um, we've kind of touched on the, usually what I do, I call it the chance question. It's what I close on, which is like, what would you do with all the goodwill of Chance the Rapper? And it's funny, I was asking this last year, and now he's giving millions of dollars to CPS. I mean, man's amazing. Um, but just kind of what would be, there's two ways I want to close this out, and then I'd love to go to Q&A. One, what would be kind of like that magic wand you all would love to have in the next six months? And we're about to have two very large-scale marches. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are, myself included, feeling of being disoriented and trying to orient um, with what everything means now. Given where you all are, both in your career histories, where you all are able to look at other models, look at the state and the city and the county, what kind of lessons would you like to see applied going forward in this year? Um, so it's kind of a two-part question. Yeah. So I, th- I hear the question as, um, what do you want in your assembly required sign? You know, what do you want to say when you're out there picketing? Um, and even that word, God, I sound so old-fashioned. Um, so I don't have a good answer yet, and I, I can't wait to go to your site and see what I could possibly do. Um, but I, I do think that there's something really profound that um, doesn't have anything to do with the federal government and has everything to do with sort of the values that we hold dear. Um, and that is that the financial industry needs to get smart about the risks that it currently faces. Um, you know, we already hear some of these risks when Deborah talks about the fact that clean energy is more jobs than coal. But there are even more risks than that. I mean, the physical impacts of climate change, for instance, have profound impacts on the financial services industry. You know, over 1.8 billion homes in the United States will be underwater by 2100, according to current climate projections, which are rather conservative. That is our money. Because when people lose their homes, we have a national insurance program that means the taxpayers bail them out. And we should if they're poor. But we do not need to be thinking about bailing out folks who own their second home on the coast. So I'm really inspired by the opportunity to change the financial industry so that we don't have another big short around these physical risks and actually can see people changing their development habits, their development patterns, where they purchase homes, where they're built, um, and other properties besides homes, so that we can all, even though we're not at the sea here, we do not feel the impacts in terms of our tax dollars going to bail out people um, due to the extremes of climate change. <clears throat> Me? Oh. I think the magic wand question I'll answer. I think it would be having a budget for the state of Illinois. Oh. <laughs> I th- and I joke, but a part of me is very serious because 
if we were stable in finances, it would make this energy environmental conversation a little bit more smoother. Um, and I, we were talking earlier, and I, I painted the picture of saying, it's hard for me to go to communities of color to say, this is what the environmental, this is what we do, this is what we're working on, when you're dealing with cuts to daycare, when you're dealing with cuts to jobs, when you're dealing with all these things that are very, you have to address these issues right away, right? And so... That would be the magic wand question, but I think touching on the chance question, if we, and Joyce talked about it earlier, if we can get all these people who are high in, in media and entertainment, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio, I forget his name, him, right? He's more involved in the conversation, and I love him. I follow him on Instagram, and it, like, makes me inspired because it's like you still have all these this money, but you're still traveling and talking about the issue. So if we had more people who had the wealth and who had the second home on the coast to talk about these issues and to benefit our communities, I think that will help get more people involved and if we focus on those younger generations too not just the 16 and 17 year olds but the, the 12 the 7 and because once we impact their brain and get them going they'll grow up to be in STEM they'll grow up to do data science and all these things that can help us in the long run so I think those two things but a budget would be yeah. great be great that would be great yeah um yeah there could be a lot of answers to the magic wand question um one that comes to my mind is if we could change some of the cultural um, assumptions about what it's going to take to make us happy. Um, and I really see a lot of this happening with younger people. I mean, I read it in surveys. I see it in my students. I teach a class at DePaul. Um, you know, I, I also teach another class at University of Illinois at Chicago, and it's about building materials in the built environment and recycling and reuse of the building materials, because building materials is the largest category of stuff that goes into landfills, and we're trying to develop... Um, uh, basically a cottage industry around reuse here in Chicago, which is another source of jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, that's great. What if we were to recycle, you know, huge percentages of that material? Why are we creating it in the first place? Why do we think we need to live in a 20,000-square-foot house when, you know, most people don't in, in Europe? Why do we think we need to um, upgrade? Why, why, you know, the more bigger your house you own, the more energy you're using, the more natural resources you're extracting to create our space. And then stuff invariably expands to, to, to fill the stuff available. You need more furniture. Um, we've got some really weird cultural assumptions in this country, and they don't exist in other places necessarily. And we'd be just as happy and maybe happier if we approached a lot of our lives differently. We wouldn't need to make so much money either. Um, and I don't know how you do that, but maybe Chance the Rapper could do that. <laughs> and I'm not saying do do without or, you know, starve yourself and be unhappy, but but just think differently about what it is that really makes you happy, I guess. We're kind of in a time where there are no rules right now. And there's a lot of opportunity from that. And I'm immediately thinking of just Chance, you know, when he got Grammys, not a record label. Yeah. Um, before opening it up to Q&A, there's a couple other people I want to thank. First off, Ashley, Deborah, Joyce, thank you. Thank you. immense thank you. 
to all of you. Um, to family Rita, Bruce, and Jaime de Medici for helping with all the behind the scenes. Emily Nuncio and Alex Lerma for helping with registration. And then also the Hubbards of NLR Worms, who are the other part of our composting partnership. And Rudy Garrett at the team in Chicago Votes. They couldn't be here tonight, um, but we have some pretty cool things planned for the marches as well as some advocacy days in Springfield that we're discussing. So stay tuned on that. Um, and finally, thank you to everyone who attended. And yeah, let's kick it up to Q&A. Everyone's looking at me. Hi. Um, I think, I mean, it's several ways, right? And you're, you have the privilege of being informed. So I think one way is, t is taking back the narrative, right? And so we hear what the federal is going on federally. We hear what's going on in the news. I personally stopped watching a lot of news stuff because it just boggles me every time, right? And so I think it's having those conversations with Fran. These are like steps up right and so maybe having those conversations with friends and family like regularly like at holidays or you guys getting together watching tv or going out like just starting those conversations to pick their brain and I, i've realized by having those conversations with my friends who aren't involved with energy they talk about it more and because we have a climate where trump is the topic of conversation it's easier to talk about things that matter because I don't know if I can say this, but I'll try to be politically correct. A lot of people don't care for Trump, right? And so, and having those conversations, it's easier to talk about things that matter and what's really going on. So maybe start there. And then you have groups like Illinois Environmental Council, Sierra Club, um, Elevate Energy, that we all work together. So most likely when you connect to one, you connect to all of us. And we have the Lobby Day coming up. We have events like this where we have it with our Young Professionals Board, or we have just happy hours where we just come together and talk and you 
you get to network and learn more about the issues so you can be more um, productive in your circle. So those are little ways. Um, and also, like you said, you're already informed, stay informed, educate others. Um, and I think that those are small ways that end up impacting more than you know. Because once you have a conversation with someone else, they talk, they talk. And then by word of mouth, it gets out and it helps the conversation um, to be more aware about the issues about what's going on. So those are like little steps that can so one thing I would just add is um, to that point about conversations. So one thing that I've been thinking about is that Chicago is going to be a great place to retire to. We're going to have a really lovely climate pretty soon. And um, it's going to be a lot better than buying property in Miami and a lot better than being in Arizona. And uh, cities are great anyway from the climate perspective, which I don't need to tell you, right? We don't own cars. We have smaller footprints. It's just a really important way to be a sustainable citizen is to live in cities. So I would say if you're going to influence somebody, tell them to retire in Chicago, not to buy a house on a golf course in Florida or Arizona. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great way to get them to start thinking about these things from their personal self-interest. Um, you know, there's a lot of advice going around these days because a lot of people about how to deal with this feeling of being overwhelmed that a lot of people are having these days. Um, and some good advice that I believe is don't worry about scanning the entire scene to figure out the best thing to be involved in. Get involved in something that interests you, that you feel comfortable at, where you feel you can contribute. Um, and you know, Ashley's right. These groups all work together. One will lead to another to another. Um, getting yourself educated about what's going on in Springfield and going down to Springfield on the lobby day would be a fantastic way to meet a lot of people from different organizations and figuring out which one kind of fits your schedule and your interests where you can contribute. And so the best, I think the best way is just to kind of don't try to agonize over where you can make the most impact, just start. Here's what I would say. I think you should talk to your building manager because I think by law they're supposed to separate. So I don't know if you've done that, but I'm, I'm surprised by the narrative and I guess it's just that I'm not in that work environment. Um, it's a shame that you're hearing that.
you know, I we're having a, a real hard time getting a handle on this for our own buildings. It depends on the waste contract that your building has. There, um, I don't know the ins and outs of all of the regulations on buildings in Chicago. I do know that they're not necessarily enforced. Um, but I think one of the best things you can do is let your, if, if you work for a privately owned, if you work in a privately owned and managed building, um, if they hear from their tenants, they're more likely to pay attention to it. There are um, recycling techniques that rely on separation at another location. So just because things are commingled when they're picked up does not necessarily mean they're not being recycled. So you should talk to the, the building and find out what their contract says and what's happening now. It may be better than you think. Um, if it's not, it's a great step to try to talk to the building and let them know that their tenants are interested in them having a better service. So I can actually, and unless you have something to add, Ashley. I was, I hear that all the time yeah. too. I, I'm just going to attest to that. It's, you know, it's, are they really recycling what we're trying to do? And I was just going to, no, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, regardless, and this is just a comment that I was thinking you can take it or leave it, but regardless of what's going on, you know, keep doing or start a recycling program yourself or, you, you know, I just think I take it more towards the individual approach, right? And so a lot of people don't recycle or they say re they recycle and they actually don't. Like I just try to practice and make sure that I'm trying to do what's right, even if it's at home or at work. But I, I totally understand. I'm not discrediting what you said. I'm just saying that was my thought. So right now is not a, a good time in the commodities market to be pushing this. Recyclers are stopping picking up glass because they are making no money on it right now. Um, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, they won't make money in the future. It's good to get the infrastructure of a program in place. But, you know, if you try to talk to your building and you don't make headway, maybe you try instead to talk to your coworkers about not eating meat every other day or something, you know? <laughs> um, don't, don't beat your head against a wall. <laughs> there are plenty of things we can work on. There's um, so the Environmental Law and Policy Center just had a lunch and learn all about the state of recycling in Chicago. And actually, we're below the national average. Um, and I don't know if anybody has ever, and so from that, there have been kind of citizen responses, including doesmybuildingrecycle.com, which is all about local organizing, building specific. And I'll share a link to it. And um, I can share on Twitter and in the recap email to direct people um, about more information about that. But if anyone has ever worked in a restaurant or a grocery store or anything related to food, you know that even though your, your employer is likely spending a good chunk of change on a recycling program, it's usually money that they should just be paying their employees. Because if you don't have enough people per shift or if you don't have enough structure or education, which again comes back to policy, if people don't understand what is recyclable, or if they're overwhelmed in their shift and they're just going to throw, you know, food scraps into recycling, then your person who's working maintenance is just going to put it all in the trash because they may be overworked. They may realize that, oh, this isn't going to be, you know, this is already contaminated. Um, so, again, I, I think what you're experiencing speaks, again, to that need for education, education at all levels, and the need for citizen advocacy, such as Does My Building Recycle? Um, and then structuring it at the corporate level 
so people have enough time and incentive uh, to do so. Well, the only thing that matters to industry is money, and that's fine. We need to figure out how to make this a financial argument. So I think the first thing that we need to do as a sustainability community is to get our benefit cost analysis uh, worked out so that people can see the true cost of drinking from those cans and the true benefits of you know, having tap water. Um, in a reusable mug. So, and I mean, just to use your simple example of recycling. So for me, it's a matter of overhauling the benefit cost analysis so that industry, which is driven by the profit motive by definition, sees benefit to being proactive around sustainability. And I, I mean, especially um, from the perspective of resilience, it's all about risk mitigation. And so, you know, corporations and industry are looking at their business continuity plans and their enterprise risk management, and especially their legal liabilities. And they're figuring out ways that they can avoid those risks. Hopefully, they're doing so in a way that's not maladaptive, that has, you know, would have, therefore, a deleterious impact on the community. But, you know, if I, if I had all the data that civics analytics has, um, I would really figure out ways to show the value of sustainability projects from the perspective of dollars and then drive that into projects that we would never call sustainability to show the disincentives that you should have on a normal project. Um, so getting businesses to 
um, do things is not necessarily what government is good at. Um, But I think there are ways we can at least get the ball rolling. So one example is this building material reuse effort that we have underway. Um, I run a regulatory agency, right? So I I have hammers. I look for problems that look like nails. And because in suburban Cook County, you need to come to my agency to get a a permit to demolish a building or remove asbestos or whatever, um, we made it a requirement of getting a demolition permit that you have to recycle or reuse a certain percentage by weight of building material. Well, that's great. Um, And we are seeing more of these uh, reuse warehouses and retail facilities like the rebuilding exchange up in Wicker Park or um, the Evanston Rebuilding Warehouse, and there's there's a new one in Maywood, and uh, we're seeing more of those open up, and they're busting at the seams because they have more material coming in. Well, great. Well, okay, so we've done our part on the supply side. What do we do on the demand side? Um, so we've started partnering with uh, organizations like there's a nonprofit called ArcaWorks, which is a public interest design firm. They work with a lot of the big architecture and urban design firms in Chicago um, to uh, create a kind of a a sexy new fellowship program where the the architecture firms will send students to work for six months on creating new ideas about how to use this material and how to source it. Um, A lot of the material, frankly, being a lot better quality than what you can buy in Home Depot these days. Um, Think about the fact that our original old growth forests from Wisconsin and and Minnesota that haven't stood in the forest for many, many years, they're still standing in our houses. Um, And you cannot buy wood like that new now. Um, But we can't do that. We have to go out and kind of spark the idea and have partners do that. And there's some very interesting um, business ideas that came out of this fellowship program that ArcaWorks designed, including um, uh, one of them designed a uh, web-based program for commercial office spaces. They generally have a long, they know a long lead time when they're gonna move and try to partner up offices that knew they were gonna move within the next year with offices that knew they were gonna expand in the next year. And you you could go online, you could visually see all the materials in the space and you could source them ahead of time so that you don't even need the middleman, you don't even need the warehouse. Um, So they're trying to crowdfund for that. And there were a number of others like that, but I think that's probably not something that government can do directly, but hopefully we can can start some sparks, can start some fires. I was gonna say one thing really quickly. Quickly, so uh, IEC is working on a residential recycling bill. So that's House Bill 3014, and it passed the House earlier, I think at the end of February. But I brought that up to say that we're working on recycling. I think it's just starting with residential. And then once we tackle that hurdle, I think it'll become more of a corporate business conversation as how we can help in the workplace. But we that's one of our initiatives. It's just a difficult topic to um, tackle. Yeah, I was going to say, to, you could really blow your attorney colleague's mind by saying, oh, I'm going to just take these home with me. Yeah. That's what I used to do is recycle all my paper from work at home. And it did make me look really weird, but I was so glad to do it. <laughs> if you want to maybe take us out with the last question, no pressure.
Well, just a quick answer for me that, um, you know, heat and violence are directly correlated. And when it goes above 95 degrees in the city of Chicago, uh, the fireman's force takes all of their firemen off of training not to fight more fires, but because they're going to be called in as um, enforcement officials um, for domestic violence cases. So, you know, I think the really important thing is to understand those correlations and to work to raise awareness in communities uh, and to then diffuse the heat literally and figure by offering opportunities for cooling um, in communities to decrease the incidence of, of domestic violence and, and homicide during extreme heat events. Um, I think I'd echo that by not, not just re-raising the jobs issue. There's such a need for people to be trained in weatherizing homes and doing energy audits um, and doing prairie restoration. I mean, there there is just a huge need for these things. And um, a lot of them, you know, they, they're jobs that require training, but they don't necessarily require you to have a PhD in chemistry. Um, and I think our um, priorities are a little out of whack that um, government programs are not emphasizing these things more. Um, they can have multiple, multiple benefits of putting people to work in neighborhoods that need it most. Um, a lot of sustainability efforts also improve health. Um, they just improve the quality of the environment. It's less toxic. And there's a lot to be said for um, a lot of the environmental programs that enhance resilience include creating more green canopies, um, creating more open space. And we, we know quantitatively that those things um, help people not only with physical but with mental health issues. Um, there's a lot of thinking in the ecological community about um, children in the younger generation and something that's been dubbed nature deficit disorder, um, which essentially means if you don't get outside, you're not active, you're not related to nature, uh, you're more tense, you have more physical ailments, you might have more um, ADHD or a whatever the acronym is, um, and uh, we've got doctors now prescribing, giving nature prescriptions. Okay, this is mostly a California thing, but um, you know, giving prescriptions for people to get out and walk in the woods for mental health issues. Um, 
so that we know that you know if if your if your neighborhood has more trees and has more green space, people are likely to be more calm. Um, I think probably the jobs is the bigger issue, but all of these things interact in a positive way. So to echo both of them, um, so when she mentioned the job training, so like for example, I'll give just a couple of examples of how if we better the environment and help with education, I think this is the portion that comes out after education, right, and seeing the implementation. And so for the low-income solar portion of the future energy jobs bill, right, the job training is not just to put the solar panels wherever, wherever they need to go, but to train them in other areas so they can be more... Um, I was going to say sexy, but we'll just go with sexy. So they can be more sexy towards other jobs in other areas, whether it's solar panels, whether it's understanding energy, so they can be more available to these markets. So when the, the solar project is done, they can still have a job in another field because they're educated with that. Um, Representative Gazzardi, um, which is up north, I forget what exact district, but he just passed, the, well, he's passing a bill. I think it just left committee last week that basically increase, increases local food. So more people will be able to go to farmer, farmer's markets and sell food without as many regulations. So that increases, you know, um, farmers in the local area to sell their food so more people can cook their food and sell it. Also, Representative Harper, she touched on it. Actually, you said everything that I kind of wanted to say. Um, touched on open spaces. So Representative Harper, who has parts of Inglewood, um, she's passing a bill that basically allots these vacant lands to become community gardens. And so we see that when you have more community gardens and these open spaces become spaces where we can have um, activities for during the summer or summer programs or community gardens, we see the violence decrease because you give kids something to do. And I think I think once... We understand how, like you touched on, Joyce, how the correlation between the environment and communities, how it's beneficial for both parties. I think that's when we'll see the violence decrease because we give people more activities to do. And not just the young folks. Everybody has something to do. You need people to sh uh, chaperone these programs and to understand, which comes in the education, to understand these programs about local gardening and stuff like that. So... She had a question over there. Okay. We're going to let my mom have the last question, obviously. There's, um, thank you. There's a few organizations that just want to shout out in response to the violence question. First off, I want to shout out um, Megan Sop, who is the founder of Great Lakes Yard. She spoke on our last panel, um, was involved with Rebuilding Exchange at the beginning of that. And Molly Meyer, who's the founder of Omni Ecosystems, they do green roofs and are super geniuses that invent soil that are more sustainable um, because Chicago is amazing. And Molly was talking about the One Summer, One Chicago, I believe is the name of it, program, and how she had students from Chicago participating this past summer. And these are kids from around Chicago who come and learn 
how their business works, from the gardening component, from the science component, from the business component. And it's like, great, these kids are now going into sophomore, freshman, junior, senior year with more skill sets that allow them to go and do more things. Um, other folks, and Sophia and Carlos, this will sound familiar to you, the place community meeting was hosted by Hannah and Keelan Blackwell, who are the co-founders of the Chicago Eco House. And I was on my phone to make sure I had the cross streets correct. They're right around 64th or 65th and Halstead over in Inglewood. And they originally were living on the north side, and they're like, we, have, we feel pretty strongly about gentrification and engagement of communities of color and having them participate in the sustainability movement. So they went and bought a house out over in Inglewood. And they're now doing programming with kids and with adults in that area on rebuilding materials. Um, they have chickens. They have a space for community meetings. They're doing their own gardening. They just installed um, solar panels, and I think they're going to be doing stuff around 3D printing. Is that? Yeah, and they have a 3D printer. Th- thank you, Carlos, Sophia, for the nod. Um, so these are all initiatives, and obviously there's more need, um, but these are all folks who are doing really good work already to try to, in a small way, address that. Um, want to be respectful of everyone's time. I think we're good. Thank you again, everyone who came. Um, thank you again to Civis for hosting.